Welcome to Kane and Rinse, Volume 4, Issue 183, where we'll be talking about Transistor. You can play along with Kane and Rinse, Volume 4. Upcoming shows, we have 999, 9 hours, 9 persons, 9 doors. Halo 3, Valiant Hearts, The Great War, followed by Bully, or Canis Canum Edit, depending on where you live, and the Geometry Wars series. All of those are coming up soon, and many more. You can see the entire schedule over at canonrinse.com, where you also find links to our blog and our merchandise stall, Facebook, Google+, YouTube, anything you can imagine. There's probably a Canonrinse iteration of it. There is also a, a sister podcast that we work on kind of simultaneously. We release that every other Wednesday. That'd be fortnightly on Wednesday called Sound of Play, where we talk about video game music. We've talked about that plenty of times in this podcast so far, but if you've not yet checked it out and you do enjoy this one, uh, then you uh, you might enjoy that one as well. It's worth a look. It's on a separate feed on iTunes, or you can uh, catch them through our website. Um, so go ahead and check that out. And if you do decide to do just that, then we would always appreciate you uh, subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on iTunes or on uh, wherever you decide to get your podcast from. It does help our exposure, and um, hopefully it allows us to get our show and our message out to as many people as possible. Thank you very much for helping us out with that. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in this issue, we have James Carter. Hello. And Sean O'Brien. Hello, hello. You'll notice this, uh, this issue is two-thirds American, which is <laughs> unusual <laughs> for Kane and Rince. We're starting to edge in. On the, <laughs> on the we're UK's going off property here. Today, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Transistor. This was developed by Supergiant Games, who is best known for Bastion. I guess only known for Bastion. Is that the only thing that they have as a team have developed? Uh, have have they done any kind of game jams or any sort of demos? I wasn't able to dig anything up. But do you know if if these people had worked together in any capacity before uh, Bastion was released? Um. I don't know if they worked on any game stuff before, but I know uh, the, I think he's the writer uh, mm-hmm. for Supergiant. Mm-hmm. Craig Savin um, used to be an editor over at GameSpot for yeah. a really long yeah. time, back in the uh, Gersman days. That's as far as I know, though, unfortunately. Yeah, he was a writer on Bastion and came on designer in this game. Um, and, and yeah, he, he kind of meant that, especially through a site like Giant Bomb, I guess anyone listening to that would have known about Bastion when it was coming, but no, uh, yeah, as far as I know, Bastion kind of, for a lot of people, came out of nowhere. It made a very strong first impression, and especially being the only game that this studio had released in the past, people were very curious as to how it was going to be followed up. Um, this Transistor, the game we're talking about today, was released in 2014 on Windows and PS4. I w- it was very heavily hyped on uh, on the PS4 as a part mm. of its I I don't I don't remember it it didn't make it to launch but I think it was originally no. supposed to be around the launch window of the PS4 yeah um yeah. but it was a it was meant to be kind of a system seller or something that Sony was very proudly showing off mm-hmm. uh and their various E3 conferences and whatnot and it uh it came to Mac and Linux later that year and onto iOS actually this month of uh, of this huh. year so yeah, yeah, two weeks ago yeah, if you've, as we uh, record yeah, actually yeah. yeah that's right if you've not played it yet and you uh and you have an ipad 
and are able to <laughs> to deal with touchscreen. I'd imagine <laughs> this game would would fit a touchscreen control uh, better than most other games that are adapted from mm. consoles and PC. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's worth considering if you don't have the uh, the consoles or the the PC that can run it. Yeah, I definitely. Oh well, I haven't played it uh, on on a touchscreen, but. I have seen a couple of reviews. Someone on our forums was uh, asking if if anyone had, had played and tried out the iOS version, um, and and so I just took a look around to see what the kind of to test the waters as far as reviews were, um, and a couple of fairly well known sites had given it uh, very very praise worthy or uh, praise filled reviews with uh, with high scores on top as well. So so it's worth saying mm. that sites that are um, about for mobile gaming, uh, Touch Arcade and Pocket Gamer uh, considered this to be uh, a pretty strong mobile game. So worth a look if yeah. if yeah you don't have a PS4 or a PC that can uh, can play it. Yeah, uh, I guess probably none of us have experience with it, but it, it's worth checking out. We just can't advise one way or the other. All right. Well, before we get too uh, too in depth on our discussion of the game, let's let's go ahead and give some of our histories with the game. How did we come about? about finding this one uh sean were you excited Mm. about this one before it came out and did you pick it up right at launch or or soon after um no actually i wasn't uh that jazzed about it because i was one of the few people uh that wasn't completely taken with bastion i liked bastion um but i wasn't uh you know i just wasn't crazy about it so when they came out, I think they announced Transistor at the PS4 reveal. I think it was one of their, or maybe Z3, I don't know. But they came out on stage and they and they were talking about it. And so, um, that, visually, it looked stunning, like from the get go, with the mm-hmm. the shots that they had and the footage that they had, very um, anime kind of style, or you know, stylishly western, but you know, anime ish, and um, that really appealed to me. And but I was still not like crazy i have to have this day one about it and um i think it was also one of the first games first indie games at least uh that seems to be this gener in this generation has a bit of an indie tax or a next generation tax that they're some people are saying where it's just like it's it's only five bucks more than the usual 15 dollars that you would pay for an indie game but Mm, sometimes that holds me back from an impulse purchase which this Mm. might have been so I didn't end up actually playing it until it came out on PS Plus, I think, earlier this year. Or okay. I can't remember when that was. Um, but uh, boy, do I wish I actually paid for it because <laughs> I guess we'll get into it later. But yeah, I kind of love this game. So. And uh, what about you, James? Had you played uh, Bastion before it? And did that inform your uh, buying decisions as to whether or not you were going to hop on board with Transistor right at the beginning? Uh, yes, to just about everything you asked. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd played Bastion when it first came out. Um, I, I, I was right there, ready to, to tuck in, and had played through that and was on the, the Cane and Rinse uh, way back when, uh, in which we, we covered Bastion. Um, and so I was looking out for this. Bastion, I had an, an awful lot of love for just the whole sort of um, gestalt of the game. Everything about it kind of came together. Um, in a way that really appealed to me. Uh, I don't think it's a perfect game by any stretch of the imagination, um, but uh, but yeah, I just I just ha- um, felt a lot of affinity with design decisions and the way the game played and just how it all sort of worked together. And so I was 
all over this when <laughs> when um, <laughs> when it started to be sort of touted and some of the not just screenshots but the the art that was being shown uh, particularly obviously any image of red is just incredibly mm. striking um, yeah. and so it, this just looked like you know more of exactly what I wanted Supergiant to be uh, to be doing. But yeah, I, I was right there on day one. I <laughs> don't worry, Sean, if you didn't buy it, I made up for you. I bought the um I can't remember what it's called, it was collector's edition or or whatever, but it had the soundtrack and a load of sort of mm. developer info. I think they released if I remember three versions, the kind of standard version, then there was the version with the soundtrack, and then there was a version with a load of um I, I wanna say there was like uh, developer um ex- sort of extras on there um as well and I looked at it a few times and thought you know what yeah let's throw the money at them so I bought it on Steam on day of release it was 20 pounds that version over here um so obviously quite a bit more expensive nearly twice the price yeah. of the actual uh, um base game um <laughs> and then around that time I just bought a PS4 and I didn't have much to play for it so I just thought you know what I I'm sure I'll come back to this on PC, but I'd like to play it on PS4. I can't even justify it, can I? This is ridiculous. Um, so I picked it up literally the day after it came out um, on on PC. I'd, I'd picked it up and I'd, I'd loaded it up, but I didn't have time to, to sink uh, too much into it. And I came home the following day, bought it on PS4 and, and gladly sat down and played it on uh, on there. So, so yeah, I, I bought Sean's copy and just kept it for myself. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I kind of feel similarly to Sean about Bastion that I like everything about it, although it, it just it didn't really become one of my favorites, and that <laughs> might just be because I haven't gone back to it yet. Uh, I, I think I played the entire thing through in one sitting or something, like on a summer afternoon, uh, and that's not always like a wonderful idea. Like sometimes you feel a little bit of burnout at the end and that kind of colors your opinion of a game. But Mm. um, I I do really like Bastion. I like the music. I like the art. I like the gameplay even. Um, But it just didn't have like the affinity to immediately uh, endear me to Supergiant in the way that Mm. a lot of other people reflect that experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, But a transistor did definitely catch my eye when they first announced it. And... It was a very uh, exciting proposition from the very beginning because the the art was really striking, really incredible, as we've already mentioned. <clears throat> Almost a little like too good to be true. <laughs> like it's <laughs> it, it feels the what they showed off was so like every little detail was so intentional and came together so well that I couldn't believe that the entire game, you know, a however many hour experience would look that good consistently. But <laughs> We'll talk about later whether or not it held up to that standard, and um, I I was interested in Bas- or sorry Bastion uh, Transistor from day one, but I I kind of held off on buying it because I think I just had enough to get through at, at that time uh, until it ended up going like half price at uh, on a um, PlayStation Network sale probably around Christmas time of last year, if I had to guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, but yeah, I picked that up on the PS4, and I uh, I played through it with uh, with my girlfriend over several sittings, um, and she was very into it as well. Uh, it, the art style and the way that it was written and the music, especially, was very 
uh, it spoke to her a lot. Uh, she, she's a big fan of like graphic novels and um, just that kind of story. And so I think it was able to connect on that level. Uh, unfortunately, I had to finish it on my own as the deadline for the show is coming up pretty quick here. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, it's um, I, I ended up playing it through kind of over the course of of several months just because, you know, I wanted to play it through with her and we didn't get all that many opportunities to come by here and just sit down and play games for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of uh, it was spaced out a little bit more than it probably should have been. <laughs> but um, and that may affect my my level to. Uh, integrate every story element together but we'll see when you get to that part of the show <laughs> um yeah I, I i played it through once so far and uh I'll, I'll probably go back to it again someday um yeah it's interesting experience but we will uh get on to that before we proceed in talking about the game we should give a uh, a very strong spoiler warning for this one it is a uh, a story-based game I'd like to put out there that I found the story a bit difficult to follow at times. Uh, I, I might just be thick, but it's, I, I think it's written in an intentionally vague way and yeah. in a way that draws in interest, not necessarily trying to be hostile to the players. Like, you know, some games are that are written to be intentionally vague, but um, I, I think it does kind of thrive on its vagueness. Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, we've done our research and we, we know the story kind of inside and out now and we can uh, provide a kind of enriching experience to those who have already played the game and have already seen these sites for, the, for themselves for the first time. But if you've not played the game yet, I would recommend going through it yourself before, um, you know, setting down with us because we will be talking about the ending and every little thing that happens along the way, I'd imagine, probably out of necessity for uh, creating a and consistent narrative hole in our minds. The game takes place in the city of Cloudbank, which is a. This is where we're going to hit our first roadblock. <laughs> is Cloudbank a real city or is it a computer simulation? There seems to be a lot of debate over that. Yeah. Uh, whether it's like such a futuristic society yeah. that things are able to be in the physical space constructed at a level that rivals that of a computer simulation now. And therefore, since everything is so automated, uh, kind of like watchdogs, the world kind of abides by computer um, logic. Yeah. Or is the entire game a computer simulation like the Matrix? Uh, ultimately, does it matter? I think it's okay to interpret it either way. Uh, but um, yeah. I, I tended to kind of lean on the perspective that this was a computer simulation, that there was a uh, separate level of reality, kind of like the Matrix, that, you know, um, you know, every meaningful interaction took place within the simulation, but there was an external world for, you know, whatever it whatever it matters. Um, uh, how did you guys interpret the uh, the state of CloudBank? I've actually got a note written in my uh, multiple pages of notes that I wrote on this over the past few days. Um, I didn't take notes at the time, but I've kind of uh, I like mm. to prepare a few bits and bobs, and I've got a, a sentence here written: "Is this a technologically advanced society or a simulated one?" L- literally, right there is the top of a, a kind of a, a group of a few notes. Um, there's also a further question there. You say, "Is it um, purely simulated?" Um, like the matrix or or is it a, a real city that is so advanced but there's there's a further question there where in the matrix specifically when you get to uh, later films there's also a difference between um, a projected digital persona of a real 
physical being <laughs> in a simulation yeah. and a program that appears to be a being but is actually a program nonetheless mm. there's there's a distinction there as well so yeah. um particularly when you meet some of the the characters and and you when you start to realize well actually in some of the characters you only actually really uh meet through the lore that you can unlock if you use some of the functions um mm-hmm. and so there's a question there is why is that person tied to this function uh, this small program if you like and so yeah. it, are they the author of that or is it are they a personification of that program in a simulation it's you can kind of tie yourself in knots thinking about it. And, and the ultimate answer, I don't think, unless uh, Sean or yourself uh, can can contradict me, is I, I don't think there's actually uh, anything in the game that, that leads you to believe that not only is there an answer to that within the game, but do Supergiant even feel like there should be an answer to that? Um, I, I just I don't think there is sufficient uh, evidence to point one way or the other, but it's an example of keeping the story vague enough that you can have your own opinion, your own take, your own perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question becomes, is it so vague that it's either meaningless or is it obs- obfuscated for the sake of trying to be vague? You know, is it genuinely, mm-hmm. yeah, is it a, yeah. with genuine intent, I suppose, that this is all left kind of up to the player to decide? Yeah, I think uh, for me, while I was playing the game, I, I kind of had to believe that it was a real world at the time so that my brain wouldn't break like it almost <laughs> did in the last five minutes. Um, um, but I, I, I think at the very, literally the very end after the credits, when you see not to jump obviously way too far ahead, but sure. Um, yeah, it seems to be some kind of afterlife um, where red meets uh, her lover at that point. Um, that's the part where I thought this is either an afterlife or this is some kind of matrixy kind of world. Um, but during the duration of actually playing it, I just kind of believed all in that it was a real world. So I, I think there's evidence to support either hypothesis that um, if this was a purely digital space, then why does the process need to physically build things? Uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, in the lore of the game, they are. Um, they are discussed in such a way that makes it sound like they are kind of like Santa's little helpers. Like they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're building in uh, on behalf of people who, you know, give them the the plans of what they need to see happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, in a purely digital space that might not need to happen, but on the flip side um, is kind of another theory of its own. But I, I tend to believe that the final boss fight takes place outside of the simulation in the real world again uh and if you if you believe that then there are a, in the that field where you have the final boss fight there are um people in tanks that kind of look like uh like the matrix like just kind of suspended bodies like they're plugged into the simulation mm. which would lead uh you know credence to the theory that this is a computer simulation so it could go either way, and I think that there are interesting story threads that you can uh, things you can take from it, no matter how you interpret it. Uh, I, I tend to think that Cloud Bank is a simulation that there is a real world, and that there is a, a deeper level of a kind of a simulation within the simulation inside of the um, transistor. But you know, we'll we'll get to that <laughs> a little bit later. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Um, <laughs> 
so the uh, the main thrust of the story uh, is that the the Camerata is this secret organization, kind of like the Illuminati or something, which uh, I, I don't know why they settled on the name uh, Camerata. I, I just kind of like briefly looked it up and it looks like it means comrade in Italian and it can refer to a small chamber orchestra or choir composed of 40 to 60 members, according to Wikipedia. So depending on how you, uh, you know, interpret that, I don't know if necessarily either one of those gives any more insight into, I like when, uh, when game designers use a, a foreign word to hide, you know, interesting details about, yes. yeah, definitely. Uh, about something in plain sight, but it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case in this one, unless, uh, you know, there's, um, something that I had overlooked, but the camarada is a, a very small group of of people who have kind of grown tired of CloudBank as a whole. CloudBank mm. is a um, of a democratic to a fault society. Yes. In which case, since they and I'm just operating under this assumption, <laughs> um, uh, since they live in a computer simulation or something that closely approximates it, they have free reign to uh, to create and you know destroy and rebuild the city and aspects of the city to uh, to fit the liking of each individual person or of the majority in this case. Mm-hmm. And so there are terminals, um, OVC terminals throughout the city that allow for people to vote on various things like, like, you know, what kind of structure should be built in mm-hmm. a certain location? You know, people might choose between a metro station or a bridge or a park or a waterfall or whatever, just based on what they would like to see there. Uh, They're able to vote on the weather, which is cool. (laughs) Uh, They're able to vote on what color the sky is and just all these, these various things uh, that they're able to kind of digitally simulate. Mm -hmm. And kind of one of the main thrusts of the story is that people, when given this much control, they, they, they like to change things for the sake of change happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like novelty and they like to see new things. And, you know, it's, it's exciting. You're in a new place and it, it's neat to see your city changing with the seasons. You know, even in real life, I think it's exciting to walk down the, um, walk down the street and see the Christmas lights up on the trees. And, you know, it just, it feels like, oh, this is something new. I, I don't want it to remain here forever. I, I'm very happy for it to and go <laughs> away come January, but it's, it's a nice little thing to look at for the time being. And so similarly, um, people tended to, you know, maybe cycle through these changes more often than they had needed. And one of the yeah. main administrators of the city, one of the kind of government officials who ran the city, I was around long enough to notice patterns and to notice that the uh, the desires of the populace, uh, the things that people voted on tended to kind of cycle in a way that was uh, maybe more flippant than meaningful. Um, yeah. He noticed that there would be kind of like circular patterns to the things that would emerge in a certain city block or uh, to some of the weather or, or aesthetics of the city and uh, kind of grew tired of um, and it felt it was futile for people to be tearing down and then ultimately rebuilding the same things mm-hmm. in their place down the line. And kind of his 
quote that um, kicks off a lot of the game is, when everything changes, nothing changes. That there is value in finding permanence, um, which is one of the big, uh, big thrusts of the story here. Um, yeah, very much. Um, you get a sense from seeing some of the terminals and and the sort of decisions people are being given the chance to vote on. Um, that that what this felt like to me is um, often we've talked about previously games and you have the same conversations about films, etc. The notion of what what the authorial intent is. And obviously in, in a, a pure democracy, there is no authorial intent. There is, I mean, you can talk about whether a society as a whole can have some kind of um, trends can be seen to be authorial intent, but in terms of taking control of the city and and, and having, um, albeit a group of people, the camarata, um, but but have some leadership there. There's no sense of, of, of leadership and, and therefore no sense of direction and yeah, you see some of the people who are administrators, but they don't have any real power because how could they in a purely democratic, you know, one hundred percent democratic society? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the name is is interesting. Uh, the notion of comrade certainly to me gives um, evokes the notion of of rebellion and revolution, um, and and the the aspect of the choir is. Um, again, if if you have a choir of everyone and they're all collectively choosing how to sing, chances are, I mean, you might sometimes in nature you see patterns of of uh, you know uh, Don Chorus, for example, something like that that can sound quite beautiful. But if you start to see uh, the the patterns and they become repetitive, are they really interesting? Whereas if you've got a choir of a smaller group of people um, with a direction with uh, albeit amongst themselves a consensus, you can create something more beautiful, um, even mm. if it's less uh, appealing to everyone. But by, yeah. by appealing to everyone, the, the city cloud bank has become uh, mundane, I guess, is, is the way to look at it. And these people have mm. decided to try and make something more beautiful uh, out of it. Kind of like Bioshock in that way. Yes, it kind of yes, has that totally uh, thinking, objectivist yeah. um, type of mentality. Uh, one of the things that the camarada do to try to uh, to enforce change in this cyclical world is they uh, it, it's it's not really clear whether they create it or kind of stumble upon it, but they they find the transistor, uh, which is a kind of a sword looking thing. Um, it, it seems to be kind of they describe it as like the brush of the world, like it is able yeah. to. Um, whether it's able to enact change by itself or whether it is directly controlling the process, which are these little kind of digital, like robot-like creatures that go about, um, uh, you know, tearing down and rebuilding the city. Like they're the kind of manual labor in this case. Um, they, they are non-autonomous. They are just doing what they are commanded by the wielder of the transistor. Um, but one of the things that makes the transistor special is that it has the ability to uh, kind of like absorb the souls of of those who it kills, um, and and so the the plan of the uh, camarada is to kind of gather up all of the most influential and the most brilliant and the most artistically gifted people mm-hmm. in the city kill them with the transistor and then with that kind of accumulated um 
you know, mass of talent and intent and willpower and, um, you know, just pure, uh, uh, human achievement in their hands, like they're mm-hmm. able to kind of channel the energy and talent of these great creators into this brush of the world that is able to create a better city. Um, because you know, it, it somehow like, uh, you know, the, the mechanisms, mechanisms behind how this all works is, is very vague and probably for a good reason because it's, uh, it's quite confusing, but, um, yeah, it's that's kind of the idea is that they wanted to kind of create something new by harnessing the power of these creators. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was on the um, wiki page for this, and I can't remember if it's from in-game text or it's just something written on the wiki. But it, it the transistor was referred to as a remote control. Um, mm. I actually prefer your analogy of a paintbrush. Uh, far far more. The notion being, on one end of the paintbrush that is used to paint, it will absorb the paint before you can then actually use it to create mm, yep. something. Um, so just like the transistor, the, the end of the, the uh, device that's used to create also takes in uh, the essence of, of, of things it comes into contact with, uh, which becomes mm. important at the end. Um, the transistor sits uh, as a, a bridge between um, the programs that are running the process and all the information going into it in the handle end, if you like, is is all the decisions that people are making around CloudBank. And what the Camerata want to do is to remove that bridge between those two systems and and uh, charge the transistor with, as you say, the creativity of these people, and then have their hands, literally physical hands, or or well. We've discussed whether they're literally physical sure. hands, but but have their their collective, small collective, the Camerata hands, if you like, um, on the end of that transistor as CloudBank is then recreated. Um, and what what we realise through the game is that without the transistor, um, the process run amok because they they're without leadership, without control, if you like. Um, the people have no control over what they previously had control over and the camerata don't have any control anymore because they lost the transistor um so everything starts falling apart and what we realize is you've got one person who has had her method of creativity taken from her um arguably by the transistor um she she has the transistor almost by accident uh, and and doesn't know what to do with it at that point in the game she literally is just trying to survive and trying to work out what's going on and it's not until the very end of the game that we actually see that she starts to understand what the transistor is what it's for and how it can be used and so we've got these three different groups of different sizes who are all kind of vying to greater or lesser degrees for control of the transistor um and what it turns out to be is a, a very uh, singular authorial con, you know, control over the transistor is what the game ends up mm-hmm. being uh, representative of, um, which is kind of weird and airy-fairy, but that's kind of how all the messages in the game feel. They, they, they don't want to be too specific with this stuff. It is supposed to be kind of um, looked at and digested for each player on their own and, and come to some conclusions of your own because I don't think there are necessarily that many in the game directly. Mm. Yeah. So there's a part of the story that has that still bugs me to this day and it must be something that I've missed. Um, but how exactly did the Camerata lose the transistor? I, I think it was just kind of a very simple, like they... Um, 
they lunge the transistor at Red, at Red to try to right. assassinate her in the very mm-hmm. beginning. And her um, her partner uh, kind of dove in front and right. took the bullet for her, so to speak. And I think it was just like she was the next one who reached down and grabbed it from his body. Like, yeah. I, I, oh, okay. I think it's as simple and, as that. And actually, the, the first thing the transistor did in that moment, uh, presumably reacting to Red's... Um, emotions was to transport her and the body of her partner and itself to the other side of the city which is why the camera okay. no longer had it weren't there um, okay mm. that that wasn't obvious to me either because it looks like you're outside the door of what could be a nightclub but actually yeah. you realize halfway through the game you've made your way all the way over to the night across the city right. um which is where she would have been singing um mm-hmm. because that's that's red's profession before uh, this whole event starts uh, as we mentioned, uh, Red's partner was stabbed through with a transistor. And so as far as uh, we see within the game, he is the, the first person that we experience being killed by the transistor. Mm-hmm. His, his soul, uh, so to speak, you know, however you want to conceptualize that, is transported into the sword itself. And, um, and there's some sort of dialogue within the game that, that says that you can communicate with the souls inside of the sword if um, if you had known them during life, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a little bit of a hand wave. Like, I don't know if that necessarily needed to be said, but <laughs> it, it does explain why we can't communicate with the other, other people. people who are absorbed into yeah. the transistor later in the game. But um, that's to say that, uh, that this, this partner, who we actually don't know that much about, uh, which is odd no. because we're inhabiting red and she should know something about this fellow because it seemed to be uh, perhaps romantically entwined or at least they were by the end of their journey um but uh he serves as the narrator through the throughout the game and since red plays a silent protagonist which is kind of ironic because she is a uh, kind of a lounge singer mm-hmm. type um but she lost her voice early in the game um i don't remember exactly the mechanism by which that happened but the uh, the only but not the only voice, but the voice that primarily walks us through the entire game, um, very much like the uh, narrator in Bastion, yeah. and actually voiced by the same fellow, Logan mm-hmm. Cunningham, um, is this uh, the voice of this fellow who had been killed uh, and is now speaking through the sword, which is... Uh, uh, it's, it's such a cool design. The sword yeah. is flashing as it talks, and so you can get a sense of like... Yeah where the sound is coming from and, and we're just this um it's very kind of like uh like kind of skinny like um lounge singer woman <laughs> like a kind of a 1920s type vibe to her uh just dragging around this giant sword that's sparking on the ground behind it as we drag it around and um the very striking image um now what do you guys think of the character within the transistor itself i can't decide whether they've given just enough narrative explanation for why again you have a different voice to the protagonist narrating your journey um i think had this come first it would have been just as uh striking as bastion was and arguably with more reason because in bastion uh forgive me if i'm wrong there isn't much reason why your character is not saying much i i certainly can't remember it if, if there is i do apologize um, but in this game, uh, again, uh, I might be filling in the blanks, but as far as I can remember, what I thought the reason for Red losing her voice was uh, the trauma of having just had this happen. Um, mm. 
I quite like the idea that, you know, in traumatic events, all sorts of weird and wonderful things can happen. And, and there's an irony, obviously, there, a dramatic irony, um, that, that Red would lose her voice and the one person that she wants to see and can't is is the voice that now accompanies her. There's a, a, a very melancholy uh, irony to that. Um, so, yeah, I, I liked it overall. Part of the reason I think I had a problem with Bastion and the the narrator in that, same guy, obviously, um, but the narrator was very like super stylized. You know, he had that mm-hmm. low voice kind of southern Western, kind of thing going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, Western <laughs> kind of thing. And in this one, he was much more, uh, I guess, normal mm-hmm. and uh, more relatable. I felt, um, but he still had a little bit of style to it. Like there was kind of like an almost noir esque style to the way he delivered his lines. Yeah. And I I just really enjoyed listening to him. He's and he's just got a great voice, so it's always yeah. nice to hear whenever he had <laughs> yeah, anything. Yeah, that to kind say. of sardonic wit to it as well, and mm-hmm. and also yeah. the the fact that you're playing as a character that looks like she should be the femme fatale in a noir film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. to yeah. the 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 main voice actor's protagonist, and and yet mm-hmm. that's subverted in that way as well. And we knew that from the off when the game was announced. You could see that from the way it looked and the way the character was designed, but mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. just a nice touch, yeah. Yeah, uh, he was very much playing a character in Bastion, uh, and you know, since the entire game was essentially just that older man telling the story, right? It made mm-hmm. sense in like, oh, he would sound like somebody who would be sitting around a campfire explaining things to mm-hmm. you know whoever. Um, but yeah, in this game, since this was just a normal guy who was killed and is you know, going along this journey with Red, um, he has a very, uh, he plays it a lot more naturally and is very kind of like smooth and understated voice, which uh, which works well because even though it's kind of quiet and non-assuming, like the entire world also kind of feels empty and cold. and um, And so even though it is so soft, it does really like cut through whatever's happening. And, um, you know, it's not a hugely action packed game. So I don't know. I think it works really well. I, I really like the, uh, the character of, you know, whoever this is within the transistor. Um, and the fact that ultimately, even though he's the one who, uh, we, the audience are hearing everything through and are kind of to some extent experiencing things through like he has no agency in the world like he has to advise red what to Mm -hmm. do and ultimately in the end uh she very strongly goes against his wishes Uh, throughout the game you encounter various enemies and they are iterations of the process which are confusing um they are kind of like little robots we introduced them a little bit earlier they seem to have been they seem to have migrated in from a neighboring reality or something i think that's how the uh, the story explains them but um yeah they're used to build and survey the city and are controlled by the transistor although after that um you know after they uh, lose contact with the transistor they uh they don't necessarily rebel, but they they kind of go on doing what they've always been doing, but they don't know when to stop. And so they're always building and rebuilding mm, the city yeah. and tearing things down or returning it to neutral states. And the things that they would normally do be doing with direction, but just without direction, they just kind of go. And yeah. they are now an immensely 
destructive force and dangerous force and they serve as our enemies throughout the game and they they Mm -hmm. take multiple shapes from little tiny you know guys that just float around and shoot things at you every once in a while to um like big bruisers and even big boss enemies and can be quite intimidating uh some of them have pretty interesting designs like there is Mm -hmm. a uh there's one that's essentially a camera that flies around <laughs> and shoots pictures of you. Yeah, and it's literally called camera, that I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just kind of bizarre, uh, <laughs> kind of like paparazzi-type robots. Yeah. But um, did any of the uh, process designs do anything for you guys? Uh, the, the young lady was very striking. That's the... Um, mm. There's no defined sort of shape of a, of a quote-unquote young lady there, but um, you, you totally get why it's called that when you see it it's it's just a lovely design where there's almost as much about the negative space as there is about what's mm. actually there um a lot of the um the various uh, process are made up of kind of white metallic or plastic shell pieces uh, and and little spikes and bits sort of sort of uh, blended together um and uh yeah i i, I like the design of that also because I had to focus on them because the way I was playing, they were one of the toughest enemies to um, to, to manage, not necessarily to take down, but to, to manage because of the way they responded. But yeah, I, I like the, the young lady enemies. Yeah, for me, the, the, the men that come in, they come in like towards the end, I think. The, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, those were the hardest enemies, I think, for me. And yeah. also I liked how their design was a little less robotic than the rest like they it seemed like there were different stages of these kind of uh of the process where you had like the um obviously robotic um like the cameras and the cluckers mm-hmm. um yeah. and then you had like a little more anthropomorphic kind of robots with um the their dogs but they had a different fetch. yeah, yeah, yeah there the you dogs, go yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then it gets all the way up into the men and they're a little more like they're almost kind of like an android where they don't have blocky arms or anything like that they were just kind of like men but obviously with different kind of heads or something like that but yeah um, yeah just thought that was a cool enemy to bring in at the end of the game and a little more imposing than the rest other than the jerk oh definitely yeah even more than the jerk i thought the jerk you could kind of manage because uh, yeah they were they were difficult and they had a lot of did a lot of damage and, and had a lot of health but mm-hmm. uh, their ai was fairly simplistic they just kind of yeah, yeah, the yeah, ground just and as long as you could yeah. manage that you were fine but yeah the men were very tough because they did a lot of damage and had a lot of health, but they could also group up on you, uh, and yeah. you found mm-hmm. yourself having to spend as much of your your turn time sort of getting away from them as, mm-hmm. as fighting them. So yeah, 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 they were definitely the toughest enemy. I thought you did get a sense that the process were kind of evolving throughout the game and becoming mm-hmm. more complex and more human like. Um, it's kind of an idea of like the singularity or or something like that, where they would start yeah. off as these little um, and ultimately revert back to after you killed a uh, process um yeah. it kind of be these little just uh core of well they were called cells um, actually those were oh were yeah, yeah. Cell. so yeah 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 they kind of look like like eve from the wally film by pixar um just these little things that and if you don't uh if you don't gather those up after you defeat an enemy then it will essentially respawn into something else so you not only have to defeat the enemy but you also have to position yourself to collect these these uh these cells uh, they did become more complex and more interesting throughout the game. Definitely, um, yeah. And some of them even started developing uh, what seemed like autonomous and conscious thought, uh, you know, from a very simple level, like the fetch dogs. Uh, mm. They 
there was one at least that uh, that took our side. Um, there's one that kind of lived in our little um, island getaway, <laughs> um, and we could play with it. And yeah. it was it was very much not a uh, just the faceless force that the game had described yeah. these creatures mm-hmm. to be uh, at the beginning. So it, it kind of made you reassess, you know, what um, what are these creatures and I don't know, interesting little you've, twists along the way as to how these things would evolve. You've just made me think, actually, because uh, the ones you fight in the game are, are hostile. Once you, you mm-hmm. uh, get close enough to them, they will become hostile. It just made me wonder, are they hostile towards red or are they hostile towards the transistor as their instrument mm. of subjugation, if that's not too strong that's or, or charge the word? Because um, yeah. obviously they've been given their freedom and they're now evolving and learning to exist. And the transistor is the thing that, that threatens that. That's hmm. I, I'd not I'd not even remotely thought about that until you just said that. It's uh, a yeah, thought, it's cool. who knows? But yeah, uh, there are other characters in this game, although there are very few that you actually meet face to face. Although among those who we only read about in lore, uh, they do still make a very strong impression. If you do decide to read everything and go down that route, um, they play. Uh, they are not only. Uh, characters of themselves they are also game mechanics and i'll (laughs) briefly explain how that works because it's also a very uh very heady very smart concept um as as we mentioned once if the transistor kills somebody they it's able to absorb the soul of that person and uh kind of use its uh the, the uh the person's personality and talents um, kind of boils it down to like a narrative thread of their life. And that <laughs> is represented uh, as the camarada would have used it in um, to control the world and to uh, create a better world. Mm-hmm. Or as we use it, uh, it's able to infuse the transistor with new powers that kind of reflected the personality of the person that we were absorbing at the yeah. time. Yeah. And so the uh, our partner, uh, Red's partner, uh, came bundled in with a with a ability called crash and that is a uh just kind of a normal sword swing yeah and it perhaps gave us a little bit of insight into this guy may have been a bit of a bruiser i know that the game's wiki um said that some of the game files uh not within the game itself but in the files of the game refer to our partner as the boxer and mm-hmm. so, you know, that, that's not within the game. So I don't want to regard that as canon, but it perhaps gives a little bit more insight as to what they may have been going for in a different iteration of the game. Yeah. Uh, but throughout the game, you encounter the bodies of people who are already killed, which makes me kind of curious about the camarada seem to be gathering the souls of these people up within the transistor. But why do we find their dead bodies everywhere and their souls not yet absorbed into the transistor. It makes for a nice like Metroid like um, acquisition of skills throughout the game, mm. but it just doesn't really make sense within the story uh, because they were very clearly disappearing and being killed before the events of the game started. So we're not the ones killing them, but uh, for some reason they weren't a part of the transistor just yet. So I don't know. That may just be another little hand wave. Like don't think about it too much, <laughs> but um we do encounter them throughout the game at various points, and they give us uh, they give us new abilities 
And, you know, I thought we'd just kind of briefly go over these characters and perhaps try to weave them into the integrated narrative. I apologize if this is uh, just review work for people who already understand the game well, but I think if we're going to talk story, then we really need to understand these characters and make sure we're all on the same page here. Um, the uh, the first one we come across, and we'll do the uh, kind of good guys first, so mm-hmm. to speak, and then the camarada separately, uh, as you know, those are um, kind of speckled throughout the game as well as boss fights most of the time. Um, the uh, the first character we run across is a Lillian Platt who um, disappeared and uh, she disappeared while she was investigating the disappearance of another one of her closest friends who was another one of these uh, like big shots in the city. And um, she kind of felt like something was going on. Uh, she was a very powerful chairwoman of the OVC, which is the organization that... Um, that organizes these community votes and kind of facilitates this, this voting process to happen uh, throughout these various terminals that also dispense the news to the population and entertainment and allow you to order food and pretty much anything you would need. Um, but yeah, Lillian was a scientist and a chairwoman of the OVC, became very suspicious of the disappearance of her, her friend uh, Maximilis and um, decided to do a little bit of investigating, raised a bit of a fuss on it, attracting the attention of the camarada, and uh, she disappeared slightly soon after. Uh, she came bundled in with the ability Spark, and um, uh, anything to add to that? As I came across these abilities, I tended to use them initially to try them, and then mm-hmm. for, for some of them, I would they would almost immediately become um, either the uh, upgrade or passive rather than actually an active function that I would use. Um, so I, I've, I've got sort of stronger feelings about the functions that I did kind of end up using through the end of the game and, and New Game Plus. But um, I think it is interesting that the amount you can find out about these people in the main in the actual playing of the game is very little. It's all through using of each ability as a function a passive and an upgrade um yeah for kind of one um combat scenario uh for for each of those before you've unlocked all the information um i think it's interesting because uh, that's one of the mechanics they use to kind of invite people if not force people to to use different abilities and different combinations of abilities to try and find what works for you and then take that away from you and see what you can do with it. There's multiple times in the game where you're asked to kind of switch abilities, but I really like the fact that they introduced this notion that the, uh, the functions are all personified uh, in yeah, this way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll kind of go into more detail about the, uh, how that whole active upgrade passive slots yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, system works a little bit later, but it's um, kind of worth noting that, you're only able to read the backstories of these characters if you cycle their specific function through all of those slots, which is interesting because these functions all, uh, just in the way that they work, they have, um, they describe aspects of the person's personality. Like in this case, Spark, um, Lillian Platt's ability is an area of effect attack. And Mm. it's, uh, 
passive and upgrade functions um, kind of function similarly that they increase the range of whatever you're whatever you're doing but um mm-hmm. it, it does make sense as somebody who was uh you know chairwoman of the ovc that was um you know all about spreading news and all yeah. about you know gathering the input of everybody from all around the city that it she had an area of effect like in yeah. real life as well <laughs> yeah. so yeah. yeah all these things uh you know it's it's cool because we have to, as we're learning about the character, experience every iteration of these abilities mm. and the fact that they inform our reading of the characters. Um, and it makes for an interesting balance uh, yeah, as we're definitely. not only reading about the characters, but also very kinetically feeling the effect of their mm. narrative, of their soul within how the game plays. Yeah, it's very it's a very rare thing that happens in games where they try to marry the uh gameplay and narrative at the same time and have them all make sense and have them all be effective. Yes. Yeah. And um mm-hmm. so yeah, when once I I didn't realize it at first that that's what they were doing here and, and then about <laughs> like I think about where I got Olmark um I don't mm-hmm. remember yeah. is he actually last right towards or, the end of the game there? Really? Yeah, that's where I that's of course yeah. my yeah, my brain registered it then. Uh, <laughs> and of course, because it's so obvious, because his power, he was a football player, so he was more powerful and he could do heavy attacks. And that power yeah. in actual game is super um, useful when you're dealing yeah. with like the men and everything. So, yeah, yeah I, just, I love everything about how this is all married together and, and just ends up being very effective. Yeah, to be kind of uh, boiling down the intangible aspects of a person and letting the player experience them firsthand. Mm-hmm. That's a, yeah. It's interesting, it's and really I've never cool. seen that done before. Um, very cool. Anyways, uh, we then run across Nyala Chen, um, Chen, who passed ordinances to improve um, kind of underdeveloped or underrepresented districts. Um, she uh, kind of advocated for people who might not have been represented um she was very interested in educating people who traditionally didn't vote uh and you know perhaps what what the internet may uh may unkindly refer to as an sjw i gotta hate using that term but she (laughs) she was very much out there uh you know really fighting for the rights of people who who might not have been um represented otherwise she opened the channel which was a space where um, people with non-standard vocations could display their works. And this uh, attracted a lot of controversy because, um, because it was calling attention to people who, whose professions were seen as being meritless and uh, kind of undeserving of notice. And uh, that's another interesting kind of Bioshock thread there that mm. people were very yeah. interested in yeah. the utility of um, of each individual and if they didn't contribute to society they were not worthy of having a space to display you know their individuality or their work or you know they were unimportant and so uh you know people got even angrier because the space that the channel occupied was uh, a space where a metro station was going to be built that would have linked a couple of the uh, wealthier parts of the city and so you know how that kind of controversy can uh, appear as well mm-hmm. um she uh, uh nyla herself got rather across with some of her um detractors and I, I guess kind of publicly had a 
um, probably a bit of a meltdown and disappeared very soon after. And you'll find in all of these cases that their disappearance was, um, it kind of coincided with maybe a public falling out or something that uh, it's not entirely unbelievable that this person would have disappeared at this time. So it didn't attract a lot of attention or conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. Um, and those who did have conspiracies tended to disappear themselves as uh, one of those kind of like, you know, scary KGB type situations. Uh, but she comes bundled in with the bounce ability. That is a function that uh, um, kind of knocks things from, uh, allows uh, chaining attacks, which uh, I guess we can kind of hypothesize how that would uh, um, it'd fit in with her personality. Yeah, she was very interested yeah, in connecting person, people and yeah, yeah. And, yeah um, making connections that others might uh, just as well ignore. Um, uh, we go on to meet. Wave Tenigan, who is a uh, an alternative broadcast personality, <laughs> perhaps like a podcast host <laughs> or something like that. He uh, um, and it kind of reminded me of the uh, the host of like Welcome to Night Vale, or perhaps like a you know somebody who would have hosted like a This American Life or whatever kind of hmm. equivalent they would have had over in Cloud Bank. Um, but a uh, a broadcast personality who um, was on the radio every single day for his whole career. And uh, was a very, you know, powerful and influential social commentator. Um, he was approached by the camarada who promised to show him what the city was really like underneath all of the artifice. Uh, you know, they had some secrets that they wanted to, uh, to show to this other, you know, potential visionary who they might have just been trying to recruit him the old fashioned way. Um, you know, as long as they, as long as he kept their existence under wraps. And, you know, I don't know what went down when they took him to this part of the city where they wanted to, uh, to unveil these great secrets, but I guess he wasn't as cooperative as they would have liked or whatever, but, uh, yeah, he had to disappear as well. Um, everyone assumed that he was just taking a long break, uh, because, you know, he certainly deserved one, (laughs) but he came, uh, came with the load function, which, um, is an explosive or an area of effect uh, type of ability, which I, I guess broadcasting could be seen as something that disperses to you know various sources, and perhaps uh, maybe if you're a, more of a gotcha journalist or something, like might be a little bit like explosive and unsettling and uh, breaking yeah, news yeah, to definitely. people in a very kind of hard hitting way. Yes, we run across Preston Moyle, who was a professional motorbi- motorbike driver <laughs> who broke speed records for four years straight. Uh, he built the bikes by himself and was always, you know, kind of a daredevil and uh, perhaps seen as like an anti-authority figure as he would you know, drive, uh, you know, down the streets of, of Cloud Bank at unreasonably fast speeds and uh, in the end ended up disappearing after driving towards a uh, kind of closed off or forbidden section of the city and uh you know just with a thought of like oh this is my opportunity to have completely empty city streets kind of like an i am legend type scenario (laughs) but um yeah he never came back um and he came with the jaunt ability which as we mentioned earlier was the uh it's kind of like a 
teleportation or perhaps allows you to kind of just warp to an area super quickly, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. which definitely makes sense. It's all about speed. It's all about, you know, this one as an upgrade can upgrade or can uh, um, increase the speed of, uh, of other functions and decrease their, their weight in the uh, turn ability. Yeah, as a passive, it reduces the time it takes for your turn to regenerate. Yeah. We run across Shomar Shasberg, who uh, is an entertainer. Seems like a really fun fellow, actually. He he pulled public pranks and did daring feats, so was a little bit of a clown and a little bit of a uh, daredevil all in one. He was nicknamed the Magician and promised to skydrop into a restricted set region of Goldwalk and walk right out, avoiding administrative detection. Um, uh, of course, the camarada was uh, waiting for him when he landed, and um, he never ended up coming out. People just assumed that he had probably been arrested or maybe killed going into something dangerous. Um, but he comes with the mask ability. <sighs> Love this Which, ability. If I'm remembering correctly, is a kind of a stealth-based ability. It allows you to either go invisible yourself yeah. or make some of your other uh, functions invisible or you know difficult to detect. We run across Henter Jalliford, or Yalliford, or however you were to pronounce that. He is an an ace detective or a forecaster, rather. He was a um, you know, a, a very, uh, very decorated officer in the law enforcement who could, you know, solve any mystery. And he became quite intrigued with why central administration decided to close down the northwestern edge of Goldwalk until further notice. Uh, you know, a lot of these characters disappear kind of in, um, in their investigations of this Goldwalk or somehow related to Goldwalk being closed down. Uh, you know, there's obviously something that they're trying to cover up there, but, um, yeah, he, he was abducted while investigating Goldwalk and his ability is ping, which is perhaps not terribly useful during uh turn. Although I could be wrong about that. Uh, it, it's very useful for people who just prefer to do all of their combat in real time. It's kind of like, a like a rapid fire, uh, kind of a weaker rapid fire, uh, long range attack which might be seen as like a detective's pistol or something like that yeah but yeah, uh, it, it contrasts nicely with uh with breach which is the other kind of long range attack but it's that one has a very very slow uh charging and so it's yeah. a very deliberate move this one's a little bit more uh you just get in there and start firing away we come across maybe my favorite character. This is mm-hmm. Farrah Yondale, who is a uh, sky painter, which is a really cool concept. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I kind of wish that they introduced more of these like completely original concepts in this game. But, uh, you know, since this is a digital space where you could create, uh, just kind of paint on the world and, you know, you could change the weather, you could change the physical layout of the city. Uh, she was somebody who used the sky as a canvas and created art within the sky, um, you know, as someone who, uh, you know, might do with, uh, might approximate with fireworks or something like she was, she used the, the changed the color of the sky and, you know, rearranged things to uh, be a very pleasing, um, she ended up getting in trouble for this by uh, painting over a restricted area of Goldwalk again. Yeah. But, um, 
Yeah, and ended up being banned from sky painting and eventually disappeared. Uh, you know, kind of looked to the public why she retreated in in shame, but uh, was probably not the case. Uh, she gave us the switch ability, which uh, was an interesting one. It caused, um, if we were to use it as an attack, it would cause enemies to kind of fall in love with us or i don't know they, they would become uh, allies for yeah, a yeah. short amount of time yeah the usual which, kind of uh, charm spell that you would have in, mm-hmm. in an rpg yeah, type yeah. thing yeah yeah which was kind of interesting because you could uh, you could uh, use this as an upgrade to any other type of attack and it would uh, cause those enemies to turn onto your side which would be a, a very useful thing um especially if you were dealing with cheerleaders which are a little kind of shield projectors they would stop shielding the enemy when it instead start shielding you yeah mm-hmm. um yeah it didn't last terribly long and there was a little bit of an annoying thing that if something was on your side you couldn't attack it and so right, if you yeah. bind this to your primary attack uh it can kind of take a little bit of time to um to whittle down the health of the last enemy in a group yeah you might have to use a different function to try to attack it and you might even be able to kind of paint yourself into a corner if you don't have any other active attacks uh you know not able to kill the last huh. enemy but i'm not sure i've never really run across that problem myself but i'd believe it the uh, next character is maximilius darzi uh comes with the purge ability uh he is a clothing designer um <laughs> he became addicted to substances that were uh you know, kind of the source of his inspiration and is, you know, probably one of those sad, you know, behind the music type stories after he decided to kind of clean up his life and get off the substances he was addicted to. Uh, he ended up kind of his, his craft suffered for it and his inspiration and work ethic just wasn't there any longer. And so he eventually tried to kind of get back on the substances, but members of the camarada, and I said, you know what? Uh, we know what's wrong with you. We have a better way. Come with us and we'll show you. And he was never uh, heard or seen from again. The idea of, of uh, purge as a function, it is a uh, kind of a corrosive or slowing effect onto a lot of, uh, a lot of other functions. But it, uh, I guess the term purge can be seen in, you know, perhaps some of the uh, models kind of purging as in like you know as a way of maintaining their uh their figure or uh you know purging as in um you know binging and purging with uh with drug abuse um can kind of fit on multiple levels there yeah i like this character mostly because it's something that unfortunately you see a lot of in real life you know it's like musicians a lot of the Unfortunately, a lot of the best musicians are hooked on heroin, and once they get off that kind of thing, uh, they're unfortunately just not as popular, I guess, or not, not as, as creative uh, potentially. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's just, it's a real shame to see happen, and mm, yeah, uh, you know, relatable. There was a very like kind of self-destructive cycle of creating art, and sometimes the art kind of create or destroys the artist, yeah. like yeah, uh, yeah, like you see in like Black Swan or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, interesting cycle. Yeah, the the interesting thing about um, Cloud Bank as a city, of course, is if if you have uh, the process uh, controlled by the transistor and there and beyond that by the the will of the people, if you like, um, a lot of kind of more menial jobs no longer exist. So what it means is you have a society 
full of mostly creative people um, because those are the, the jobs that are left to do. Um, but it's a very interesting thing for Supergiant to do, being a, a small group of very creative people to to kind of <laughs> enjoy making a city where creative people are at the forefront of society, even more so than, than they would be in any uh, sphere today. Yeah, we ran across uh, Bailey uh, Gillande or Gilland, I would imagine. Gilland looks That's, French to me. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> I am painfully American. I apologize. <laughs> hey, I might be wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like yours better, anyways. Um, <laughs> this is a uh, individual who became preoccupied with the past rather than the future, uh, and kind of revamped the city's archival systems. Um, she seemed like a. Uh, maybe kind of a disagreeable personality or at least somebody who had a maybe kind of schizoid tendencies just like to isolate and study history rather than engaging with people. Um, but uh, uh, did really pave the way for uh, creating a written history of the city, which is something that um, it seems like in the constant change and constant striving to improve, people had been neglecting which is an interesting uh, little story bit in itself. Mm. But she comes with the get ability, which um, is kind of a, a, it it draws things closer to you uh, and a magnetic type function, which I, I I think this is one of the ones that you get to choose between this and one other. So I don't think I ended up ever acquiring this one myself, but um, uh, it, it does make sense that she's out there gathering information, and so necessarily yeah. the function mm-hmm. would be gathering things and uh, you know bringing it toward herself. I I'd never I never use this one. So what, did either of you have experience with get? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, it was almost I think necessary if you wanted to get uh, one of the achievements was to um, deal two thousand and forty eight damage in a single hit, and so uh, that had to be in one of the the process challenges. Um, and so what you would end up doing is uh, you'd have a group of enemies around you, you would pull them all in towards you, and then I think the technique that I used was just to to do that and then to to keep firing turn until you became a super user um, and use the kill function on everything when it was around you. So um, Yeah, I almost never used it because for me I was constantly trying to keep myself away from <laughs> yeah. the enemies, so I, I, the idea that it would pull it towards you would just not really work out because you you'd use the turn and they'd then they'd pull towards you and then the turn would be over then they're right next to you yeah so yeah well, you, you, you could know. do that and use jaunt to get away from them and then right. and yeah. then fire some kind of uh area of effect weapon at them to to damage yeah. them all while you were away i suppose but yeah it, it it didn't seem a necessary one when being mobile and hitting enemies kind of individually seemed more mm-hmm. the way i certainly like to do it so and then finally, we meet Olmark, who is a an athlete. Um, it's never really specified which which sport he he plays, but from the way he's dressed and the way that the game is described within his backstory, it seems to be kind of like an approximation of American football. Yeah, um, that's what it looked very like. Very kind of like a rough and very you know contact sport. Um, he uh, was famous for making very dramatic and reckless plays on the field. And uh, in several of these instances, he inflicted very serious injuries to rival team members. <laughs> and it, this got to the point at which it was almost every match he was hurting somebody. And um, it caused officials to put uh, put in place new safety measures, which negatively affected the pace and feel of the game. And Omar felt kind of personally responsible for this. But his ability, Cole, which we've 
talked about in the um you know previously yeah wow. was very destructive and kinetic and uh um able to uh, is it's basically like it makes things hurt a lot more which makes sense with his his character by far the biggest damage dealing function in in the game 225 base damage for that one um yeah which explains why you get it quite late on in the game um i suppose yeah. because uh by that point it uses up a lot of your turn, don't get me wrong, but by that point you can have a lot of memory slots available and quite a large uh, turn pool um, to use. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's one that once I got it, that was my go-to uh, along with yeah. some other main functions, but yeah. So along with those characters, we also meet, sometimes fight, sometimes just, uh, you know, stumble upon a suicide <laughs> scene, you know, at various points of uh, various Camerata members. Um, there are, I think, only four members of the Camerata. I, we, I think we run across all of them throughout the game. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the, the first boss of the game is uh, Sybil. Uh, Sybil Rise. Rice, perhaps? yeah, yeah, Rice. Rice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she is. Uh, it's kind of implied that she was the one who was uh, behind the attack at the at the beginning of the game that spurred yeah. the uh, events of the game to take place, and it seems like she actually had a, a bit of a crush on Red, the main character, yeah. uh, or was you know perhaps non romantically obsessed or something of the other. It seems to be romantic in nature, um, but she was a very you know high society gal. Uh, but she played kind of the eyes and ears of the camarada mm. and um, her obsession with red caused uh, her to give some bad information about, you know, she said that red would be alone after the show, probably knowing that her partner would be with her yeah. and kind of wanted, you know, in the chaos of the situation for her partner to be killed off so that she could have red all to herself. Um, yeah. I love that uh, turn of, of events. Um, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's such a because it, obviously the first thing you realize is that um, she was the one potentially sent to kill or certainly t- arranged the situation for for Red to be attacked, mm-hmm. um, and the notion that I got the impression that maybe she was in some way aspiring or in admiration of the profession of being a lounge singer, um, and mm-hmm. and maybe had aspirations to be that herself, and that was part of maybe the infatuation she had with Red. Um, yeah. But yeah, then that she essentially betrayed the camarata by trying to engineer a situation where Red would actually be left living, which is not what the camarata wanted, or the rest of them, um, and and the partner would die so that she could have her own way. Just um, yeah, it's a, a nice little turn. Not, I mean, it's not. Um, it's not. It's not that you wouldn't have had that sort of thing happen in say a noir film or other games, etc. You know, it's mm. a it's a fairly um, well trodden thing for someone to be selfish uh, against the the will of the group that they they claim to be operating with but yeah. um but yeah this one just seemed particularly poignant uh, and the fact that it was the first boss in in the the nightclub where red had had been attacked and and this whole thing had started was was a really nice sort of poignant pivot moment because you've gone all the way out to the nightclub and then you're essentially turning around and coming back at that point i think so mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah yeah and during the fight scene she's She's the first character besides the sword that talks out loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, all the things that she's saying 
fall right in line with this uh, this narrative that she was obsessed with Red because you know she's constantly saying like no we this wasn't supposed to happen this wasn't how it was supposed to be and yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you finish her off which is interesting how like you you destroy the boss but then her body's still there and just kind of limping along and you have to give her one last uh, whack and then she says something along the lines of like um, and now we can be. It's just like now we can be dot dot dot. Now we can be or something like that. So we mm, be together yeah. finally. Like she actually achieves her goal in the end. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, because now she's a part of the transistor. Right. And yeah. you know, like the like the sword says earlier in the game, is like when I look up to where the sky should be, I see you, and I know you can hear me. Like she is achieving some level of intimacy with Red, even though Red, you know, not having uh, uh, known her during life, can't see or hear her but mm-hmm. she is kind of achieving what she wants some way shape or form yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, she comes with a with the help ability which uh summons a robot dog to fight at your side <laughs> which is super cool and useful <laughs> yeah um, and uh yeah it's uh one that i ended up using quite a bit actually mm-hmm. we come across uh, kind of a, a joint pair of uh asher and grant kendrell who uh, Grant Kendrell was this um, administrator of Cloud Bank and one of the founding members of the Camerata. Uh, he was the one who initially became tired with the uh, cyclical decisions of the majority uh, voting yeah. public. Yeah. And um, he and Royce, uh, Royce Brackett, started the Camerata together. Um, he, um, Asher, was an editor for the OVC, and kind of a very curious man and was a, a very prolific writer. Um, he studied the history of the city, but kind of became frustrated with all of the dead ends and contradictions that he found in his research of the city and started piecing together kind of a, uh, in a history of cloud bank as well. Just kind of like, uh, the other character we were talking about. And, um, as he was interviewing several of the older members of the city, he came across Grant Kendrell, who had been an administrator forever, it seems. Uh, and they ended up uh, really hitting it off. And uh, he became quite enamored with Grant, who told him truths about the city that blew his mind. And uh, it seems like they were married, uh, since they both mm-hmm. have the same last name, last and name. they didn't seem to be yeah. uh, relatives, as they mm-hmm. met, I think, during the interviewing process. Mm. Um, and you, uh, you find them together. I, I believe when you encounter them, they are, uh, they, they kill themselves because they realize how out of control everything has gotten yeah. and how irredeemable their situation is. But, yeah. uh, um, um yeah, well, one of them, I forget who, um, actually contacts you. It's Asher. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. I, I was going to say, I thought it was Asher because, um, yeah. Grant's character, that wouldn't make sense because, um, he's kind of pitched as essentially a politician who has no power. Um, and, yeah. and the one thing you can say about politicians, albeit potentially good meaning, is they want some semblance of power to be able to bring about mm-hmm. change. Um, yeah. And he doesn't have that. So there's a much more bitter note to his motives. Whereas um, Asher, it seems to be that uh, he has had his eyes opened about what the city is and, and mm-hmm. how it works. And in the way that Grant's kind of seen this um seen the cogs turning as it were um mm-hmm. and an asher uh, looks at that and thinks well seems to have genuinely good intentions and and contacts you mm-hmm. seem seemingly uh, genuinely lamenting uh the way things have gone and and how it's all worked out 
Um, and yeah, then you get to their their apartment. Um, you you go to to meet them to see if you can work out what's going on and how to stop it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, you think it's going to be a boss fight, and then it's actually yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a shocking scene. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, they uh, Asher comes with the void function, which is uh, kind of an amplifying effect on things, and um, and Grant comes with the tap function, which is kind of regenerative or leeches health off of enemies. Yeah. yeah. And then the final member of the Camerata is Royce Brackett, who I think is a, a very interesting character. He uh, ends up being the final boss of the game. He was an engineer who used the process to change the city's design. It was uh, the one who um, discovered the process and the transistor from this parallel linked reality or however uh, it seemed like he kind of like half invented it, half stumbled upon it. I'm not sure the balance of that exactly, but um, he was very precise and mathematical in his designs and created a very efficient city, uh, was kind of the primary like city planner, uh, the one who laid out everything to the exact specifications that it needed to be to achieve maximum um, efficiency and ended up creating kind of hybrid structures that served multiple purposes. As he noticed, you know, one city block may cycle between being a bridge and a metro station and a park and, and kind of cycled between these various things. He, he built special structures that served the purpose of all three of them, but they were so like alien and weird. And even though they were perfectly efficient, people said like, Ooh, no, we don't want these, mm-hmm. uh, vote them out, vote in something else, something that we can relate with. And I think this kind of personally offended him, uh, you know, despite loving his work, yeah. he took a lot of pride in it and, you know, it kind of destroys you a little bit to have to tear down everything that you build every few months. Uh, so I think it eventually ended up getting to him. And so he approached, Grant with the idea of starting the Camerata and mm-hmm. creating a world with a more singular intent and more directionality. And, um, uh, yeah, so he, uh, he was the one who we end up confronting in the end of the game. He's protecting something called the cradle, which is a place where we're supposed to plug in the, the transistor that is like the, ethernet port of the world kind yeah. of uh yeah. that allows the transistors effect to be amplified and gives us control of the um of the process but um yeah we end up fighting him in a in a separate reality after plugging the transistor into the cradle uh which i i tend to interpret as being like the actual reality uh but i can see it even you know a very convincing argument could be made for this is an even faker level of reality, a simulation within a simulation, whichever way you want to take it, fine with me. <laughs> um, but it's kind of this farmland type scenario. Yeah. And uh, I, I, let's go ahead and talk about this boss fight because I did not care for it at all. Um, he uh, yeah, he has a separate yeah. transistor of his own and yeah. uh, thus is able to do turns as well. Which um, I guess we can kind of get into here. The uh, since we've not really explained it thoroughly, the combat is uh, very much like Bastion's a little bit in that um, you know a lot of it's very kind of like action packed, and uh, you know you run up to these characters and you initiate your various attacks, uh, you know, to deal damage. But you have a uh, 
you have something called the turn, which separates it from Bastion in that it it freezes time and allows you to uh, kind of queue up several attacks all at once. And, um, and so it provides a little bit more of a tactical... Uh, and then once you once you end the turn, it kind of locks you into that sequence of events and allows you to do you know potentially a lot of damage all at once, mm-hmm. or you know things can go wrong and enemy can teleport away and you're just stuck mm-hmm. attacking this one spot and <laughs> yeah. you're completely vulnerable. Yeah, but, you learn uh, that lesson with young ladies quite quickly. Exactly, you'll yeah. hit them yeah. once oh, and that's it. You're <laughs> moved to a yeah. different enemy. <laughs> yep. Um, but uh, yeah, during this this final boss fight. He has the ability to turn as well. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I just found it frustrating in that <laughs> um, once he initiated his turn, there was really nothing you could do to try to avoid his attacks. Uh, you yeah. could layer on passive effects that would give you a shield or a reflect yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But um, other than that, once he, once he locks you in, you know, and sometimes it even takes the computer a little bit of time to think about what it's going to do next. And so you just kind of have to sit back and watch your health drain without really having much say, which I found to be kind of a frustrating rhythm to the game. And by that point, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the game, but at that point I kind of wanted it to be over. The combat was getting a little bit more difficult than what I was really mm-hmm. comfortable mm-hmm. with, uh, mm-hmm. especially taking such long breaks in playing the game that yeah, like I said, I kind of had to relearn no, the combat no, system multiple times, and it didn't really do a great job of like re uh, accumulating or reaccustoming me with the yeah. combat yeah, no, after no. having taken a break. So by that point, I was just kind of button mashing and just wanted to kind of brute force my way through it, which did not work well at all. <laughs> that final fight. What do you guys think of the final boss? I, I actually really liked it because mm. it it ended up. Um, kind of turning the tables on you and that now you're as you were saying like you, you had no chance to get out of the moves well yeah technically at the same time neither did any of the enemies that you fought throughout the whole game and <laughs> now this boss so it's kind of like you're you're getting a taste of your own medicine um but that can still i can see how that could be totally frustrating at the same time because yeah. you're yeah. It's like that especially if you're at the end of the moment to the dark link type scenario <laughs> yeah. where you're yeah. fighting you're equal right yeah. yeah 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 no that's exactly what it was for me it was um yeah, really refreshing, I thought, to to suddenly be in this kind of cat and mouse situation where you're both simultaneously cat and mouse, both of you. I mean, yeah. you know, both of you are yeah. both things. Um and and yeah, if uh on the surface of it, it just kinda looks like a, a like a damage race. You're just trying to out damage him mm-hmm. because you know, yeah. you'll get hit by a thousand points of damage and you want to do fifteen hundred on your turn. Um the downside obviously being that he has three health bars. Uh, which <laughs> certainly was a shock. Yeah. Um, but uh, but what I found was if I was very careful w- and measured in how I was doing it, which by this point in the game, having played through not all in one sitting by any stretch, but having played through in a short space of time, I kind of knew e- exactly what I could get away with doing in each of my turns mm-hmm. in terms of what combinations of the different functions I was using I could put together. Um, so I was able to actually... Um, I think I swapped back in jaunt and I was able to jaunt far enough away from him that he could barely get to me in his turn. Um, and then I was able to, to because he'd got close to me and hit me, he was very close and I could use my turn to, to do quite a bit of damage and get away again. So um, it meant using a different combination of functions than I had been. But because, again, as I say, I'd, I'd played it in quick succession and been doing all of the, 
the challenges up. Whenever they unlocked, I would pr prioritize the challenges and get them done. So I was always maxed out on those. Um, and a lot of those, what they did was um, deprive you of certain functions or require you to um, to deal uh, all of your damage and clear a room of enemies in one turn, etc. So I kind of got to know the combinations of how everything fit together. So I felt like I was at that point able to tailor my um, it, my inventory, my my set of abilities uh, to perfectly suit that fight, and I found mm. it really enjoyable. It was um, this great way of saying, yeah, okay, you've proved yourself against a bunch of um, enemies that have very fixed patterns of behavior and very fixed sets of abilities. Now, how do you cope with someone who's basically as powerful as you are? And I thought that was a really nice way to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the only other um, kind of big event uh, or kind of boss that uh, pursues you throughout much of the game actually is the Spine of the World. And this one to me felt a little out of place. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of this like giant dragon-like creature that is able to uh, kind of like shoot its tail out of walls and kind of, you know, mess up your journey throughout the game. Uh, I, I didn't really understand what this was or I, I guess within the <laughs> lore it like used to be an art fixture or a statue or something in the world that i guess the the process had um kind of a uh, given life to once yeah. they took over uh, but yeah i i don't really understand this one um i i don't know if i really have a lot to add to the spine of the world uh super cool name i understand the imagery of it in that um it's supposed to be obviously in a city where the public have decided on every single facet of it. If there is a monument in the middle of that, every, you know, a, a majority of the public have time and time again wanted to keep that there. So that's it's of importance to the city uh, by virtue of being of importance to the people. And being a, a spine uh, is is a networking term in many ways. So it, it, in being in a digital space, the spine is representative of the digital network that the cloud bank represents. So I get the imagery of having this, this sign, this, this spine, this uh, kind of manifestation of the city itself uh, being this antagonist. Um, but I didn't particularly find fun, the sections where you had to kind of dodge it as it was coming through yeah. the walls and floor at you. I did I thought that was frustrating. Uh, and the, the fight was uh, visually quite uh, striking and, and epic, but, but yeah, I, and the the fact that the the voice of the transistor uh, wasn't able to cope with being in the presence of the spine, um, I thought that was interesting. Be, almost being overwhelmed by the the process at that point, uh, I thought that yeah, was yeah. That was great as well. But yeah, it wasn't a a wonderful boss fight. I don't think necessarily uh, to to match up to the the imagery and the metaphor of of what it represented. So. Yeah, it it almost felt like they had two boss fights one at the beginning one at the end and they were like oh we got to have something in the middle to break yeah, up yeah, this yeah, uh yeah you know. while we're kind of discussing the story here let's go ahead and talk about the ending yeah. because mm. uh as we mentioned before it was a kind of a controversial point uh, a lot of people did like it a lot of people really didn't yeah uh, i tend mm. to fall in the camp that i really do like this ending that yeah, me too. um it's a little melodramatic but um <laughs> at the end uh after red defeats um all the various members of the camarada and has full control over the transistor. She 
does kind of awaken the ability within herself to create the world as she sees fit and very effortlessly creates bridges and art and statues and buildings. And, uh, you know, you get that sense of like real power. Um, but then she ends up kind of hightailing it straight for the, uh, the spot at the beginning of the game where we find the body of, of our companion and she lies or sits down next to him, kind of drapes his arm over, over her and, uh, holds the transistor up and ends up impaling herself with it, uh, much to the, um, uh, against the protests of the voice within the transistor. Like he wants yeah. the best for her. She yeah, wants, he wants, he wants her to, live. to, uh, yeah. to continue living, even though he can't be with her, but you know, she, uh, she felt so close to him that she was willing to give up, you know, this world that she was living in and was essentially like the God of now to, uh, you know, take a chance. And she didn't know what was going to await her on the other side, yeah. but she knew this guy got killed with the transistor. He's to some degree within the transistor. Uh, she's going to give it a shot and see if she could join him inside. Yeah. And during the end credits, um, there's a, a shot of, of her and him being reunited in this kind of like a farm type area, uh, which you can interpret as maybe, you know, killing yourself within the simulation boots you back out to the real world. Or uh, she was, her soul was absorbed into the transistor. And, you know, it's not just this ethereal space that it is actually like a, uh, you know, the mind is so powerful that it needs a place to exist. And so even if something doesn't exist, the mind will create a consistent space. And, you know, there was, you know, for all intents and purposes, another simulated space uh, within the transistor where all these people were living because, you know, souls don't just stop existing. Like they still exude power and personality and yeah. oneness. Yeah. And so... um you know, it can be seen as retreating within a deeper level of the simulation as, um, you know, honestly, CloudBank was starting to deteriorate after everything that had happened. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I uh, I didn't see it as an act of cowardice or of retreating no. from the troubles that CloudBank was in. But, uh, you know, it was, it was a choice that she made. Yeah, and an I don't think choice. that there's yeah, more absolutely. dignity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in, you know, living in the real world or cloud bank or whatever it was like, she's just living somewhere else now with yeah. uh, ultimately with this guy that she was quite attached to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there, there's a line that is only spoken. I think I want to say just twice. And it's when you find Asher and Grant uh, dead and you can read one more message from him. And he, he says, you know, basically why they did what they did. And then he finishes it with see you in the country. And then you can mm, sit yeah. there and you hit respond, see you in the country. She just writes, see you in the country. And it seems to be like there's this, the idea of the country being this afterlife that yes. maybe they yeah. all kind of understand that that's where they'll all go once they die. Potentially. So I, yeah, exactly. If, if you, if you go the route that I'm going where it's, if this is a real world and uh, if there's mm -hmm. an afterlife, then, you know, then that's where she's choosing to go to be with her lover. So I find it all very yeah. poetic yeah. in that way. I wasn't quite sure as to what the country represented. I, I thought it was kind of like a, 
like of mice and men where you would say like, oh, he's going to see the rabbits. He's going, or, <laughs> you know, the family dog, he went to live on a farm yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just kind of a way of like hand waving death because in the society where everything is so perfectly engineered, uh, it would make sense that they wouldn't want to even acknowledge that death still exists, that it's still mm-hmm. a thing. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. going to the country might just be a polite way of saying it. Although it is odd that the... Uh, perhaps the real world that we might have had the final boss fight in and this this world within the transistor or maybe mm-hmm. if we are now in the real world mm-hmm. is kind right. of like a country type setting so i don't know if those mm-hmm. are coincidence or if that's really what it was referring to um mm-hmm. maybe the real world is so hostile now that going to the country is not a place where you want to be like it is seen <laughs> as death because death mm-hmm. is inevitable there uh, mm-hmm. whereas the simulation is so perfect but um yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting another layer to uh, yeah, yeah, that definitely. people can theorize yeah. about. I, I will say, I, I think uh, someone needs to give Greg Kasavin a hug because this is three <laughs> suicides in one game. It's a little intense. That's true. <laughs> As we've been talking about the game for so long now that it feels <laughs> weird to transition into the most fundamental aspects of it. I just wanted to kind of go into the uh, a bit of the, um, uh, the functions here. Uh, we mentioned that they had uh, active upgrade and passive slots that they could be yeah. uh, they could be linked into, and um, and as we mentioned, like you would have to play portions of the game with each function in each slot to unlock the full story of the character uh, kind of housed within. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it was an interesting way of uh, forcing you to play with different play styles that you might not have uh, preferred um, gives you the ability to experiment with new things that you might not have tried otherwise uh, kind of reminded me of vanquish how you would have to use uh, guns that you didn't prefer to upgrade the ones that you did really want to strengthen <laughs> you know because you needed to have those at full ammo to um, to upgrade but yeah uh, interesting gameplay decision there uh, yeah, there, there's multiple ways. Uh, the the challenges force you to play with functions you haven't used in ways you might yeah. not have tried. Um, unlocking all the lore does as well. But the other thing that does is is quote unquote death. Uh, you don't die in the game. Uh, you just have a yeah, function yeah. removed. And what that does is force you initially to play with your remaining functions that you've got active. But then when you get to your next checkpoint station, it, it kind of means that you're going to have to switch it out because for a, a couple of combat sections, it's going to take before your function is recharged, basically. Um, so in all those ways, similarly to Bastion, where um, it didn't force you to, but in the challenges, if you completed them, uh, what tend to happen is everyone found their pair of melee and ranged weapon that they preferred and could have sworn that that was the best, the only way to play the game until you spoke to someone else and found that they never used those two weapons and used something yeah. entirely different. In in this case, I think they made it much easier, uh, if, if not uh, required, to actually understand all the different functions and how they can interact uh, in order to, to get through the game. Um, so yeah, I I wouldn't raise any eyebrows at anyone's combination of functions in this because I think all of them have their place and all of them can work in interesting ways. Um, and the way they slot together is, I haven't tried to do the maths to, to work it out, but I think it probably is pretty much limitless in terms of the different combinations you can have, especially yeah. once you get into New Game Plus and get multiple copies of the same function. So yeah. 
sorry, recursion, I should say, rather than uh, Nukem Plus. We're uh, kind of running dangerously low on time here. We've been talking <laughs> for quite a while, but uh, it, it would probably be remiss to not at least mention the soundtrack by Darren Korb. And um, God, it is, it, uh, it's, it's phenomenal. Like, I don't know yeah. what else to say. Like it's, it has a kind of a loungy noir type um, feeling to it. Like you would expect from the character of red and the world that she lives in, but it's also, it has, uh, it's difficult to qualify it in like a genre type sense. Like there's something about it that feels uh, very inventive and very new. And, mm-hmm. you know, unlike anything that I've heard before, uh, Darren Corb had previously composed for Bastion uh, Supergiant's earlier game. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's just, it, it's a, it's a breathtaking soundtrack. So if, mm-hmm. if you don't end up playing the game, at least check out the soundtrack. It's, it's well worth whatever, you know, yeah, money it's definitely. being sold for. I think like the Bastion soundtrack, it's available on a lot of streaming services. So if if you have access to those, see if it's on there. It's worth it. Bastion, I think, was known for a couple of very, very well-known songs from that soundtrack. And that's not to dismiss the rest. It's just those became iconic, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, for for that game or uh, emblematic uh, of of that game. Um, In this one, I think the soundtrack is uh, less well-known for one or two songs, but uh, as an overall piece, it's... It's outstanding. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It really yeah. is. That reminded me of like the Portal 2 soundtrack or something that does kind of, it, it feels like very smart, very well-composed music, very organic music that yeah. just kind of existed in the background rather than creating specific songs. Although there were like songs like uh, yeah. Red would have sung yeah. during her mm-hmm. life, but uh, a lot of it was very uh, you know background music, but it was all very pleasing and all very, uh, all super intelligent music too. Yeah, uh, just yeah. like extremely well written. But anyways, uh, let's go and hop on over to our community. Uh, we've had a few people um, post over on our forum to communicate what they thought of uh, Transistor with us. And if you wish to do that in the future, then you can join us over at canonrinse.com slash forum or email us at uh, podcast at canonrinse.com and we will try to read some of what you had to say on the show. All right, I'll go ahead and start off with the uh, mm-hmm. post of Baker's 12, who said, I loved Bastion, so getting Transistor on day one was an easy decision. It helped even more that it came out when there was a lack of games that I wanted to play coming out on the PS4. The new gameplay ideas work, work very well. The stopping time in combat and queuing up moves works well and adds an extra layer of tactics to the combat. But for me, the standout idea in this game is the power-ups that you gather throughout the game, each one having three different uses, an attack, an upgrade to an attack, or a passive upgrade to your player. This gives you so many options and gives you a way to tailor the character to your preferred playstyle. But the very clever thing with the upgrades is that they also act as lives. If you lose your energy, you lose some power-ups, and this forces you to use the different combinations, ones you might never have used in this way without this penalty. As for the story, I enjoyed its fantasy Tron setting and characters, but for me, it was missing a major part from Bastion, and that was the heart. The story sadly left me a bit cold. Which, fair enough, it is much more of a downer story, although Bastion was a little bit, you know, end of the world itself so maybe it's just not a studio that cares to tell like cheery happy stories which is fine with me 
the other thing is is how vague parts of the story are. If you yeah. don't go into the backstory of some of these uh, functions and and the, the characters that the um, they are associated with, and and you don't do a lot of either reading or surmising on your own, the, the story might feel less important or or less fulfilling than yeah. than say Bastion's maybe. The Bastion story was still fairly vague, I think, but uh, but it was it was more conventional in some ways, I suppose. All right, uh, Sean, would you like to read Todinho's? Todinho says, as a big fan of Bastion, I was looking forward to playing Transistor, but I was also afraid that Bastion was going to end up as a one-hit wonder and overshadow its successor. Fortunately for me, Transistor ended up standing on its own, and I was both pleasantly surprised and slightly disappointed. The game itself follows a structure very similar to Bastion. The difference being that Transistor is a way more streamlined version of it, which is fine, but I missed the connection I had with the Bastion. On the other hand, aspects that really stand out in comparison to Bastion are the aesthetic and sound. Somehow Transistor managed to blow Bastion out of the water in this regard, especially the soundtrack that was nothing short of superb, and makes it seem like the game was built around it and not the other way around. But then we get to the story. Once again, one of the things I liked most about Bastion was how it told its story, made you care about its characters, and how it gave you just enough information about the world to intrigue you. In Transistor, I feel that they were going for a similar thing, but completely missed the mark. I really wished I would have cared more about the world of Cloudbank. The premise in itself is interesting, but I just couldn't care less about the Utopia's problems and how everybody was just so perfect they got bored of living or something. That's why the entire plot with the Camerata didn't make sense or interest me. I got the basic idea of what they were trying to do, but their motives are left so vague that I just didn't care about any of them either way. Actually, vague would probably be the best way to describe the whole world and story, and this becomes especially problematic in the ending where the player is left clueless as to what's actually happening, and the worst comes right at the very end when your character takes agency out of your hands to do something either incredibly selfish or that the player can't possibly understand. So yeah, while the story and its conclusion left me with nothing, actually playing the game was a blast from the beautiful art style, impeccable soundtrack, and the incredible gameplay, and I have no doubt in my mind that Transistor was one of the best games of last year. I only wish I could have liked it more. Fair enough. And uh, James, would you like to read uh, the last one here? <laughs> I'll let you introduce the person as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> relatively new poster on the board, I believe, and I, I'm not sure how to pronounce uh, your name, so I do apologize. I'm going to go for Telepri. It may be T Lepri, I'm not entirely sure. T L E P R I E. Who says? Bastion is in my top 10 favorite games, so when I heard about Transistor, I got a little excited. I didn't pick it up day one, as I'm always looking to save a few dollars, but got it in the summer sale and played through it in probably two or three sessions. First, what I liked about this game almost everything. The art and the music are fantastic, and the gameplay is incredibly unique. I love how it takes a similar approach to Bastion with a variety of weapons, upgrades, and difficulty modifiers, but throws a new spin on it. The mix of free-moving action and turn-based tactics require careful planning, especially as the game progresses. While the combat could have become repetitive, Supergiant made sure to keep things interesting with new enemies and lots of powers. Up until the end, I would be trying different combinations, my favourite being an area-of-effect attack, that converted a lot of enemies to my side. The final boss stands out of one of my favourite boss fights of all time. Having an enemy with the same abilities as me and having to outsmart them was very thrilling. While it didn't stick as well as Bastion, Transistor is still a great game on its own and one that I would recommend anyone give a try. 
Yes, and a little bit more succinct, we have some three-word reviews that were posted um, in response to our call-out. We like to, on the day of recording, uh, ask for some three-word three word reviews over on Twitter. So, um, summarizing this game in only three words, Richard Atwood said, Soundtrack hits hard. Ben Monroe says, Bastion sequel, please. And Munchies the Wolf says, be human button. I don't actually know what that means. I don't but know what that means. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyways, you can, uh, you can find that on our Twitter over at at Kane and Rinse. All right, now uh, I guess that just leaves our, our summary. Uh, I'll be brief here in saying <laughs> that uh, Transistor did make a very strong impression on me. I, I think that towards the end of the game, and it was perhaps the way that I played it, um, you know, multiple sessions spaced out over you know months of time it's probably not the ideal way to go about it and especially something that was more kind of tactically demanding uh, as far as the combat goes um so i uh i enjoyed it but it, it did kind of leave a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth um with the combat difficulty ramping up so heavily towards the end uh entirely of my own design and i apologize for that but it's one of those things that kind of makes me like, I want to revisit the game, but I kind of don't want to play those later combat encounters again. Huh. And so I'm left in that kind of space of like, there are things I want to do and things that I don't want to do. Um, but the, uh, the game itself, like it looks, it's unbelievable. The, uh, the art style that, uh, Gen Z had created for the game, um, uh, is every single screen just looks uh, phenomenal and breathtaking. And there are uh, such interesting architectural um, structures throughout the game that you're running across and artistic structures. And it, it really gives the idea of a uh, kind of abstract digital utopia um, in a way that I've, I've never even seen before, especially something in motion that I can interact with and explore on my own. Uh, very cool. Um, uh, game sounds lovely. It has really intriguing play elements as well. Um, so yeah, I, I would wholeheartedly recommend this to anyone who's looking for something new and unique to get into. What about you, Sean? Uh, for me, Transistor could very well be one of my favorite games ever. Um, it's, I, I'm not totally comfortable putting it on like a top 10 ever list yet just because it's still maybe a bit too soon. <laughs> and I might just be basking in a little bit of an afterglow here. Um, but as of right now, there's nothing that I th can find wrong with it for my tastes, uh, other than maybe the spine boss fight, but that's just, you know, that's one moment in the whole game. And, um, yeah, as you said, it's gorgeous. It sounds great. It's fun. Like usually most games at least get one of those things wrong <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it seems to get all of them right for me and it's just short enough. The length's perfect and the, it's so imaginative and different and it's a game that respects your time and respects your intelligence. So, you know, if it, it has yes. a full story there, if you want it, if you don't want it, that's fine. Um, yeah, just I, I love everything about Transistor, and I uh, can't wait really to see what Supergiant does next. Thank you very much, and uh, let's round this off with James. Um, I I love just about everything about this game. Um, it's interesting hearing um a couple of our correspondents talk about similarities to Bastion because 
it's easy to see how they took the structure of Bastion uh, gameplay and, and, and aesthetics and, and the way that the game uh, looks and stuff like that, took the structure of it, kind of paired it back to its structure and then iterated on it and created something different. But to me, this game isn't that. It, it's not about uh, changing things from Bastion. It's more about, I got the distinct feeling when I was playing this game that this is the game that Supergiant intended to make first. Mm. But because a couple of the things, the vague story, um, arguably a female protagonist maybe, but that's, that's a different issue, um, that definitely the turn-based combat uh, and, and the world that's presented, they're a little more difficult to take for some people. They're, they're not as appealing or, or not as, as easy to digest. They might have had to scale back those things and make it a more straightforward, um, real-time combat and and you know have the this sort of slightly more straightforward story uh, and character interactions etc that's how this game feels to me it feels like this is the game they wanted to make first time around they scaled it back were successful and then they got to make the game they wanted to mm. i have no idea if that's the case i can't project that onto supergiant but that's what the game means to me um and I, I got to the end of it first time round and I hopped straight back into New Game Plus where you get the, the tough enemies from the end of the game are right there in the beginning. Story-wise, it's the same, but you get those enemies straight off. Um, some games I've talked about before where the, the things that were sort of little niggles, not too much of a deficit, but they're the things that stick with you over time and they're the things you come to remember the game for. Destiny is one of those games. Um, where my my appreciation diminishes over time because the memories I'm left with are the negative ones. No fault of the game, just that's the way it is. Um, this is exactly the opposite. Last year I probably had this, uh, or you know, somewhere in in the middle of of my list in terms of top ten games that I played last year. At the end of the year, I put together a list of ten games I liked and, and just popped them into order. But um, not that it means anything. But over time this game just grows and grows in my estimation. Stuff like The Spine mm. of the World, I remember the meaning of that rather than how it actually played. Right, yeah. And, <laughs> and that, any negatives have just faded into the background. And actually, this podcast just makes me want to get straight back in and play it all over again. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and, and I've got a PC version on Touch to do that on. So yeah, that's there you right. go. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I have nothing but love for this game. And I, I get the impression that it's just going to grow in my estimation over time. And if you have it on PlayStation Plus or you see it in a sale on, on PlayStation or, or Steam or on iOS even, um, I'd be interested to try that version. Yeah, give it a give it a blast. You just might find something that, that changes your conception of what video games can do. Excellent. How special does a game have to be for something like Bastion to be seen as practice <laughs> for this? Like, uh, mind-blowing. <laughs> but... Um, all right, that is uh, that's about all for this this issue today. It is just up to me, Ryan Heyman, to thank James and Sean for joining us as we talk about Transistor. And, and next time, join us in issue one eighty four. There is zero escaping from nine 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 hours, nine persons, nine doors. See you next time.
Come.